Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, buddy. What's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, what is ever really going on these days? Business as usual, but I mean, it's it seems like our lives are maybe going to get upended in uh, about a week, and we're going to start watching some basketball games again, which is kind of a crazy thought. Yeah, we've got, I believe at the end of this week, we've got... I don't know if you'd call it preseason, preseason, midseason basketball, and uh, and next week we've got real regular season basketball, seeding regular season basketball, and at that point we're just kind of off to the races. And you know, good news coming out of the NBA in the last twenty four hours is that uh, of the I believe it was three hundred and forty six. Is that the number of people tested in the bubble? I think that's correct. Um, zero positives. So we talked last week about how the bubble is. Um, you know, working as planned in terms of the guys that were testing positive never made it into the bubble. And now we're at a point where every single person in the bubble is testing negative with about a week to go until the season starts. So for now, still positive. Yes. (laughs) By being negative. Yeah. um, That's obviously good news and a good sign. I mean, there are still a bunch of players who have yet to join their teams in the bubble, some of whom have confirmed that they've tested positive for COVID, uh, some of whom everything's been kept pretty hush-hush. And I think there is, I, I mean, certain media members have called this out just about the lack of transparency and the lack of information that's being given for who is actually in the bubble, uh, who has or hasn't contracted the virus. I know, I don't know if you listened to, to uh, Windhorst's pod this week, but he like stopped just short <laughs> of calling the NBA a fascist institution just because of the, no, I, I, def- I most definitely did not hear just, that. Just because of the opacity with which uh, they're they're going about this and controlling the flow of information and not really allowing the media the access that they're accustomed to. Uh, they're they're playing everything really close to the vest, and I think, I, I mean, if it's true that that they've had you know zero positive tests in the last round of testing, where you know they've tested all three hundred and forty six. Um, it, it, does that apply to the entire traveling parties? That's just the players, right? I believe it's just the player. Uh, actually, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that twenty-two teams the with like their traveling parties are like thirty-five deep. So that, yeah, yeah, that would be yeah, just the players. But but I do think it becomes a concern where if if you don't trust the league to be forthright with important information. And you know, like they obviously have a vested interest in seeing this thing through to its conclusion, and they don't want certain information getting out there. Then, you know, I think it, it's not too far of a logic leap to think that maybe there's like a mini outbreak at some point in time, and the NBA is trying to keep it under wraps because they want to figure out if there's a way that they can handle it uh, and continue the season when the optics would suggest that you know, that's a really bad and dangerous idea. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a reminder about the important role of media. And I don't want I don't want to, you know, get on my high horse here and seem like holier than now in any way or over dramatize the importance of sports media, but media is media. And, and even in sports media, like this is a good example where you need to make sure media has enough access at least to tell the story and get the truth. Right. And in this case, it's more than just getting the truth about a game or the X's and O's. Like it's about uh, potentially health and safety and how players and others inside the bubble 
are being handled and respected really. So I do think it's important as much as, you know, we can laugh at Windhorse, you know, alluding to the fact the NBA is practically a fascist organization. I think the frustration, I think, comes from a good place in that sense, regardless of what you think of Brian Windhorse. You know, media access is important in being able to tell the whole story, even in sports. Yeah, I guess that's my one minute rant about respecting sports media. <laughs> wow. I feel kind of sleazy after that. Well, it's uh, like if if the NBA was just... I mean, I guess there would be no way to know how transparent they were really being. But I think if it seemed like the NBA was being more transparent with this information, then it wouldn't be as big of a thing. You know, you wouldn't care, I guess, as much about having, um, you know, media people serve as middlemen and women uh, who who are translating this information uh, and passing it along. But I just think it's a little bit strange because when it comes to stuff like injuries. I mean, I know there there is some sometimes some opacity when it comes to that stuff too and like certain teams don't like to divulge a ton of information if they don't have to uh when it comes to player injuries, but maybe they're acting or they think they're acting in like the player's best interest by protecting their privacy and not divulging who has contracted the virus, but I just think that's a, a strange approach because it's I mean, it's it's a matter of public health and safety. You know what I mean? And I guess for those people, you would hope that, you know, whoever they've interacted with, the people in their life, like they've at least privately reached out to make it known that they've tested positive so that anybody who might have come in contact with them uh, can have that information and act accordingly. But I just think it's strange for that to be a thing that is that is kept private. Like this is something we're all dealing with. You know what I mean? It's not. This doesn't yeah, seem I, like the kind of thing that ought to be like a private medical issue. I think you know the key is them being honest and straightforward with the people around them and in their life that may have come into contact with them. But I, I do understand like the desire for privacy in terms of like whether the public finds out specifically who had it because I don't know. It's not like a basketball injury or something related to that that. I feel like in this case, if a player doesn't want it to be public knowledge, again, as long as they're informing the, the people that need to know that might've been around them. But I, I don't know. I guess I just don't see as much of a need for it in terms of being public knowledge, especially when they are isolated in a bubble or are going to be isolated in a bubble. You know, it's not like they're going to be out mingling in Orlando where the public needs to know like, whoa, that... Rudy Gobert's here? Like, whoa, let me steer clear. I mean, in general, probably steer clear to Rudy Gobert because the guy continues to be a clown. Check his last tweet. But uh, Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I get what you're saying, but I don't feel as strongly about, like, the public needing to know when it comes to a, a guy being positive for coronavirus. I think the public has a right to know that if James Harden tested positive after, like, hosting a pool party. Agreed. We deserve to know and shame him accordingly. You know what I'm saying? Agreed. Yes. All right. So the other piece of news, or I guess non-news, if you will, is that uh, the eight seeding games will not count towards NBA awards voting. So on that note, I, we don't want to get too into the weeds here because we did literally devote an entire episode to this a few months ago, and you can go back and find that. I believe the episode's actually called NBA Awards Picks, and I think that's the episode that ends with an interview with Stefan Marbury. Great. Uh, my picks were MVP Giannis. Yep. I believe yours was as well. Uh, defensive player of the year, I think. Did I have Anthony Davis? I know you had Giannis. I might have had Anthony Davis. 
I thought or we I might have had Giannis. Yeah, we might have both had Giannis. Rookie of the year, I think we both had Jaw. Yep. Coach of the year, we both had Nick Nurse. Yep. Six man, did we both have Schroeder? Yep. All right. And then, uh, oh, I think where we disagreed, I had Ingram for most improved player. I had Luca. Um, okay. And I think that was our one disagreement. I think executive of the year, I had Presti. I don't remember if you had Presti as well, but. I think I might have actually, yeah. I think we did. I think we were surprised that we both had Presti because we both thought we were going with a sleeper pick. But yeah, so th- those are our awards picks based on the pre shutdown um, version of the season. Again, if you want to hear more of our detailed breakdowns of why we went with those guys, head over to the episode that is titled Awards Picks. Do you think it's the right call to to have the voting done now and ignore these eight seeding games coming up? I, I don't. I don't think it's the right call because I get that nothing about this season and this restart is normal, but I still think that in terms of the way like we remember the season or we um, analyze and evaluate the season, like we should still try to approach it with some or the NBA should at least try to approach it so that there is some sense of normalcy when we talk about, I don't know, like um, player performances and things like that. And at the end of the day, these eight games are going to count in the regular season standings. And I know the argument is that, well, for the eight teams that aren't there, like they're not getting the chance, but let's be real out of the eight teams that aren't there. How many guys are in awards contention? Like maybe, maybe I would have been cool if you said, you know, um, all NBA voting ceases to exist right now because maybe there are guys on really bad teams that are in the running or all defensive team voting all rookie team voting sure i don't care but in terms of the individual awards like i don't know we i know you weren't as big on it but we did talk about the fact lebron had maybe inched his way closer into that race after that you know around the time the season was suspended for real though like what if for whatever reason Giannis just has a rough eight games like i don't know for, for he slumps for the first time in two years and LeBron goes absolutely apeshit for those two weeks. And by the end of the eight games, the Lakers actually overtake Milwaukee. Like, I know it's very unlikely. If something like that happened, the fact that none of that would matter in terms of MVP voting. Meanwhile, we're counting those games in the standings and they're determining playoff. It just seems so strange to me. It's like, well, do these games count or do they not count? I was just going to say that I feel like you you're upset about this because you wanted LeBron to have that chance <laughs> to overtake but Giannis. But it's not just LeBron. Like, okay, even the Zion thing. Again, I don't think Zion would have won. Like, Ja had such a big sample size compared to how small Zion's sample size would. But again, like, had Zion, you know, led this crazy surge for the Pelicans to get into the playoffs and maybe if Ja had gone into a slump or the Grizzlies fell off, like, it wasn't completely out of the realm of possibility that Zion could have worked his way into that mix. We talked about how um, tight the sixth man of the year race was between guys like Schroeder and Montrez Harrell, and I'm forgetting a, a third name for sure, but like um, the most improved player. You know, I had Brandon Ingram, you had Luka Doncic, Shea Gilgis Alexander's in the mix. And, you know, maybe these guys don't even care about the awards. I think they do, but maybe they don't. But I just think, like, what would the harm have been? in in waiting an extra couple weeks to send these ballots out i don't know if this is a real thing but you say what would the harm have been i guess if they're concerned about soft tissue injuries especially in these first few games as as teams kind of get ramped back up i don't know that you necessarily want these players like going full bore in those first couple weeks as they're trying to win an award and that leads to like one of the best players in the league getting injured because their workload is higher than it should be when they're okay, coming off a four and a half if, month layoff. If the argument is that we don't want the players to try too hard, 
<laughs> like, what, what are we saying? What are we doing here? Well, like, I mean, okay, if you're kinda, Z- that kind of is it, though, right? Like, the teams that are locked into the playoffs, I don't think are going to be trying that hard. I think the teams that are going to be trying hard are the teams that, like, actually really need to win games in order to get into the playoffs. And I think maybe there are a couple teams who, like, they have a, a matchup that they prefer that they will play for. But I think for the most part, the teams that are, like, have clinched playoff spots are going to be using this time as like preseason essentially to get everybody back up to speed and on the same page. And I don't know like how many of these games are guys like Kawhi and Giannis, like how, how many of these games are they really going to be playing in or at least playing more than like 20 minutes a game in? You think it's going to be that you really think it's going to be that much like a preseason? I don't know. I I really don't like, I, I think we won't know until we actually see it, but I think this is unprecedented. You have a layoff that is equivalent to an off season, but without the work that is typically longer, longer in some cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be, you know, four and a half months. And and usually in an off season, it's like guys are in the gym getting in runs. I know some of the guys have been doing that, but a lot of them haven't. Um, They're working out. and, And then there's an extended, you know, training camp run up that helps them get, into game shape before the season starts. And that's just not the case right now. So I honestly don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how much these guys are going to be playing, but I do understand from the NBA's perspective saying it doesn't really make sense to, to include this eight game seating stage with everything that happened in the regular season before the shutdown. I can see it from your perspective as well. Like the games technically do matter in terms of seating and the standings. So why not include them? Um, I don't have any issues with them doing the balloting now. So it's just to me, it's strange that we're saying these games do mean quote unquote mean something uh, in the standings and affecting playoff races and all this. But oh, like no matter what you do, it's not going to affect anything related to your own individual accolades. It just seems a little, it seems a little half-assed. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, let's get into the main, I guess, topic of today's pod. And that's that you and I, over the last week or so, have been updating a series that's essentially running through the teams we think are the most interesting in the bubble. It's literally the teams that we think are going to be the most fascinating or the most compelling to watch for some reason. So... We'll run through the teams and we'll talk a little bit about each one and why we wrote about them. So, you know, you wrote about the Rockets and the Sixers and the similarities there in these flawed contenders. I did a little something on the subplots to monitor among the league's top three contenders, uh, the both LA teams and Milwaukee. You did something on the Blazers and the Pelicans being the most interesting teams in the in the playoff race. And then I did something on the defending champion Raptors and why they're remain very interesting and fascinating. So we can kind of run through all that. And I wanted to start with the post that started it all and a really, really good, fun read that everyone should go check out. And it was Joe's piece on the Rockets and the Sixers. Almost being like uh, 
opposite twins, if you will, in in opposite conferences. So tell us what that piece was about and why you think both these teams are so fascinating. Yeah, so I think the way I described them was spiritual siblings. And yeah, there are so similar, so many similarities with these teams, despite them being like polar opposites stylistically. You have the Sixers who play huge, uh, the Rockets who play super small. Sixers have kind of gone all in on defense. The Rockets have gone all in on offense. But I think both of them just sort of have this air of experimentation about them. And also an air of desperation where like the disappointments are starting to pile up and the teams have each been remade multiple times over uh, these last two, three years. And when it comes to building around their respective superstars, they're both kind of running out of cards to play. You know what I mean? Like if what they're doing now doesn't work, I think their front offices are going to be very hard pressed to pivot in a way that's going to make the teams better. So that's kind of like the context in which these teams are going into the bubble. And I think they're probably the two most volatile teams in the bubble in the sense that outside of those three teams you mentioned, the teams that we agree are the title favorites, like the Rockets and Sixers arguably have the highest ceilings, but their floors are also way lower than most, if not all of the other fringe contenders. I think like they they could both easily lose in the first round. I don't think that would be surprising at all. But also if like if someone from the future were to tell you, okay, a team in the West is going to crash the Lakers Clippers party and a team in the East is going to beat the Bucks, see if you can guess who those teams are. I feel like the Rockets and Sixers would be pretty good guesses on either count. Um so, yeah, that's that's why I think that they are so fascinating, um, just because I, I don't really know where either of them is going to wind up, at, at which end of the kind of variance spectrum um, they're going to end up fulfilling. So I'll, I'll be watching both of them really intently for all those reasons, and also just like some, some stylistic minutia that I think is going to be really fascinating. It's not crazy to say this could be a finals matchup. And this could also be two teams we're talking about after the first round of the playoffs having been eliminated and like Brett Brown and Mike D'Antoni are out of jobs. You're like that range you talk about and how low the floor is and how high the ceiling is. That's that's really it. We're talking about like championship or first round elimination here. In terms of the stylistic minutiae, both teams are fascinating from that perspective because you've got the Rockets who just went all in, obviously, on small ball and then some, like a different breed of small ball once they traded Clint Capella. But I think they went into the break having lost. They lost four in a row and then they pulled out. Right. They beat the Timberwolves by six points before the shutdown. Right. So, so not they, exactly they went an in inspiring win, but slumping. But shortly after the trade, they did have some inspiring performances. Like they, they remember that game against Boston on the Saturday night? That was. I would go back to when Capella got injured. That was when they essentially started playing with Tucker as full-time center, which was like a few, like a couple weeks or maybe a week before they actually ended up trading him. Okay. So if you go back to that, I think their first 12 games, they went 10-2. and two, And they beat the Lakers. That was the first game after the trade. They beat the Lakers. They beat the Celtics twice. They beat the Mavs. Like they had this really incredible run. And then obviously it kind of dried up. Uh, they went into a bit of a shooting funk as a team. And they were getting manhandled on the glass, which is definitely something I want to talk about and started losing to uh, like inferior competition. They lost to 
the Knicks. They lost to the Hornets. They lost to the Magic. It was not pretty. Yeah, and so right there, I mean, you want to talk about like an interesting team because you just don't know, you don't know what's real and what's not. The Rockets over the last month before the shutdown were like a quintessential Jekyll and Hyde team. You know, and even just the Westbrook thing, his his season really was a tale of two halves. Like that that first half, he he looked like the player he had been the, the last couple of years that, you know, to be quite honest, was kind of starting to fade and and just wasn't managing games properly. And then as the Rockets went smaller and smaller and there was just more space to operate and he himself stopped chucking threes and focused more on getting to the rim again and being that like just rim rampaging guard who could get into the teeth of a defense. Like he he looked like prime Russ again for, a, I'd say, a solid like two, two and a half month stretch. And the Rockets are going to need him to be that guy and take advantage of the extra space out there without a Capella or whoever manning the middle. And, and to me, that's one of the most fascinating things about the Rockets. And like, forget the team aspect, which is obviously going to be interesting in its own right, but just seeing how Russ looks, not just in these eight games, obviously, but in the postseason, because, you know, he's a guy who's had some postseason struggles as well. When you talk about like efficiency and kind of leading people to believe that he's a net negative sometimes in the playoffs, it's going to be really interesting to see if he can carry over the way he finished the season into very meaningful games now. This is another area in which I kind of compared them to the Sixers in that their two stars don't really complement each other that well. I pointed out the fact that like they, despite the boatloads of assists that they, that they both rack up, um, they only assisted on each other's baskets uh, like uh, something like 120 times this season. There's like two per game. You can really see that when you watch them play because... Russ remains a fairly stagnant off-ball player. I think there are certain things that he's gotten better at, like cutting along the baseline. He's a little bit more active than he used to be. But a lot of the times, he's just sort of chilling, hands on his knees. And Harden, when he's playing off the ball, and this isn't always his own fault because a lot of teams will just sort of face guard him no matter where he's standing. And sometimes, honestly, it is beneficial for the Rockets to just have him standing out near midcourt, literally near midcourt magnetizing a defender out, you know, 40 feet away from the basket. And the Rockets are just playing four on four in the half court. And that just allows Russ and everybody else around him a little bit more space to operate. But they they sort of just operate independently of each other at the offensive end. And so they're not really creating baskets for each other, even though they're individually creating a lot of open three-pointers for everybody else. And so I'm not entirely sure that that's a problem, um, at least not at the offensive end. At the defensive end, I think it's more of an issue because both of those guys have some pretty bad habits, falling asleep off the ball and getting back cut, kind of lazily swiping at the ball on the perimeter rather than moving their feet and trying to stay in front. They're not great transition defenders. Harden just tends to kind of lollygag. Westbrook chases offensive rebounds, so that hinders his ability to play transition defense. So... Like the Rockets actually defended at a decent level after, like overall, after they went small. I think they were they were thirteenth or fourteenth after the trade, and with with Tucker and Covington both on the floor together, they defended at a top ten level. So maybe that can hold up. But there are also just a ton of red flags, uh, including the fact that like they don't have any rim protection, which is to be expected. Uh, opponent shot sixty seven percent at the rim against them after Tucker became their full time center. And the rebounding thing, where they were just the worst defensive rebounding team in the league, and opponents are getting literally a third of their own misses. 
I point that out as an issue, not just because of what it means for their defense and like they're having to defend extra possessions, but like that's also taking possessions away from their offense. The Rockets killed teams in transition this year, but I think it becomes a little bit harder to leak out and run when a third of the time that you force a miss, the opposing team is just getting the ball back. Um, So I think there's like a compounding effect there. And you saw like that game they lost against the Knicks. The Knicks just killed them on the glass. Same thing with the Magic. And all of this, like that, that's why I, I was like, I really want to see them draw the Nuggets in the first round. Because I think as they're currently on pace to do in the three six matchup. Yeah, exactly. And so I wrote about this because we did like the playoff hypotheticals series when we were wondering what it would look like if the standings were frozen and these were the matchups. And I think them against the Nuggets would be one of the most fascinating stylistic matchups in the whole postseason. The Nuggets could absolutely feast on the glass. Yeah, the Nuggets in that series. second best offensive rebound exactly. in the league. Uh, yeah. The Rockets, as I said, being the worst defensive rebounding team in the league, and then just like Jokic in the post, doing everything he can to like make skinny, tougher. skinny Jokic in the post. Yeah, I guess we we don't know how that's gonna look, right? I mean, I hope yeah. that I hope it doesn't dampen his impact in the post at all because doughy Jokic in the post is an absolute monster. Yeah, you get lost in that dough. So maybe they lose a little bit of his like post dominance, but he's also a little bit more nimble so that the Rockets can't stretch him out as badly at the other end. Yeah. Skinny Jokic doesn't necessarily mean um, weaker Jokic, right? Like, even if he's not... Okay, and even if it it does, but he's like 90% of what he was strength-wise, but a little quicker, I don't think he loses anything in terms of his post-dominance because now he's still got the majority of that strength, but also maybe has a little more agility to work some moves down there. And he was already pretty crafty down there to begin with. So I'm not even necessarily concerned about him losing uh anything in the post but yeah i i really do i'm with you that i'm rooting for that matchup because i think stylistically they're so different and it really will be fast like it's the ultimate paper matchup that you can look at and be like this team is atrocious picking up defensive rebounds and this team dominates the offensive glass and it'll be really interesting to see like if that just plays out to chalk the way we expect it to and the nuggets are getting like four shots on every possessions because the rockets just can't do anything about it i do want to talk about the sixers but before we get there so what real quick what would your pick be in a rockets nuggets series uh when we did the hypotheticals i I mean i flip-flopped back and forth like so many times between uh rockets and six and nuggets and seven and that was obviously accounting for home court home court so in this case i i would assume that it would go seven I think that I would have the Nuggets squeaking it out, but I really do think that it could go either way. And I think it would just be like, that's the thing with the Rockets, right? Is like the variance is going to swing in both directions. And there would be some games when they would look totally unstoppable because they would hit a ton of threes. And, you know, the Nuggets would maybe whiff on a bunch of offensive rebounds and the Rockets would kill them in transition. And then there would be other games where like, you know, the Rockets shot like 25% from three and the Nuggets got like 20 offensive rebounds and it was a blowout in the other direction. And I don't, I just don't think there would be a ton of carryover from one game to the next, but I think ultimately I would, I would pick the Nuggets to win that series in seven. I'm with you on the variance, man. Like I think there would be games in that series where Russ and, and Harden are both on and the, the three point shots are falling. And it honestly looks like the nuggets don't even belong on the same court. And the rockets are like going all the way this year. And then, yeah, in the next game they'll, they'll lose by 31 and get out rebounded by 131. Um, but I still feel like if that thing goes seven, which I think it would, 
that I do think as much as I love Jokic and I think people still don't really appreciate how good he was in the playoffs last year, I still think Harden would end up being the best player on the court. And the way Russ has looked like the last couple months, you could argue they might have the two best players on the court in that series. And I do think in a game seven situation, especially without the Denver altitude mixed in, I do think that would be enough for the Rockets to get through. All right, let's 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 quickly talk about the Sixers because they were the spiritual sibling, as you called them, to the Rockets. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll put it back on you. So what, what do you make of this Ben Simmons power forward situation? Ben Simmons is great with the ball in his hands because he's a brilliant playmaker. And honestly, one of the best passers in the game. And as everyone is so painfully aware... He can't shoot and no one respects his shot. And there are issues when your primary ball handler is not a threat to shoot at all. I don't know. Maybe maybe having him play power. I mean, you, you've you been big on this. Haven't you been big on the fact that he's not actually a point guard and is more of a power forward the whole time? And I think, you know, there are some interesting things they can do. I think Ben Simmons as kind of like a playmaker off the catch and off the short roll could be really interesting in pick and roll situations. It's not like them... Call, making him a power forward means he's not going to be able to make plays for others. He'll still be able to do that. And I don't know, maybe it leads to a guy who's already really good at creating three-pointers doing that even more because maybe he's finding guys in the corner off those short rolls. I don't yeah. know, but I think it just speaks to the uniqueness of Ben Simmons and of this situation in that you've got this guy that is just this unbelievably brilliant playmaker. You're kind of taking the ball out of his hands in a sense because of his shortcomings. Okay. But that was already sort of happening in the half court in the playoffs. Right. Yeah. And and like, yes, I have been saying that I, I don't think that he's a point guard. Um, and, and that's why I wonder, like, what is this actually going to change? Um, and to your point, I think he is tops in the league in three-point assists. So he's obviously still good at creating for others. A lot of that is coming in transition, but he's still a capable half court playmaker. It's just a question of, you know, in that sort of confined space when defenders are laying off of him, like, can he find his way to the kind of penetration that it takes to draw in help and have those kickouts to open three point shooters? But like, I, I am curious. So tactically, this means Horford being out of the starting lineup. Right now, it sounds like Shake Milton's the guy who's going to replace him. Shake Milton shot like a billion percent from three this year and offers just like a little bit more ball handling uh, and obviously the shooting. So I think that's the right call. I definitely think all year Horford has been way better as a backup five than as a starting four. I think the Sixers scored 11 more points per hundred possessions when he played the five than they they did when he played the four of those three kind of like rotating bigs, you know, Horford, Simmons and Bede. With any combination of those three guys, other than Horford and Embiid together, they played really well. So I think sort of separating Horford and Embiid as much as possible is a good idea. With Simmons, it's like, okay, he's still going to be handling the ball in transition. And in the half court, I would imagine like he's still going to be spending a fair amount of time in the dunker spot. So like, has his role actually changed? I would like to see them use him as a screener in the pick and roll more often. I've been saying that for a while. I'm certainly not the only one. And if Horford's not there, kind of cluttering up their spacing, maybe this makes it a little bit more feasible for them to do that. Because I do think that he could be a fantastic short role playmaker. And, you know, he would essentially be serving in the Draymond Green role, right? A guy who's like able to guard one to five at one end is essentially a, a point guard in transition and in the half court is more of a playmaker on the role than he is like as an initiator. So I think that's the right approach. And whether they actually use him that way is the question that I have. But 
I, I sort of think that like my biggest question with all this, why are they just figuring this out now? To me, the biggest reason that they have arrived at this kind of fork in the road identity crisis type of moment is that they have shoehorned Simmons into this role as a point guard and haven't prioritized getting a point guard because of that. And all these these big roster overhauls that they've made have not resulted in them having like a primary ball handler who can, I mean, I mean, I guess Butler was that guy, but Butler also is like, you know, I, I guess he's sort of like a point wing. I don't know. That's not entirely fair because they did draft Markel Fultz to be that guy. And if Fultz had been the guy that he, he looked like he was going to be coming out of college when he shot, you know, 41% from three on like a high volume of attempts with a ton of them coming off of the dribble, the Sixers would be in really fucking good shape right now. All right. Well, let's not go down the Markel Fultz road because unfortunately we don't have the time to do a six and a half hour podcast. Um, look, I mean, you mentioned Horford essentially being moved to the bench and probably if 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 this works the way they envision it, probably not being part of their closing lineups either, right? Like if if this works well. Right. And then that begs the question, like, okay, look, at the end of the day, yeah, you should roll with the lineup that's best for you, especially when you're in the kind of boomer bust situation the Sixers are in. But having said that, how Horford's going to make... You know, depending on how that the the last season of his contract was, this is a guy that could be on the hook for eighty one million dollars over the next three years, who was already showing some, you know, just natural signs of aging over the last couple of years to no fault of his own. But if that's the case, and the Sixers are now going to reduce his role, like I just I wonder internally what that's going to be like. Elton Brand is still somewhat new to the job, but you got to figure there's more pressure on him than would be usual for a, a year two GM. Brett Brown, I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum. I, not that I necessarily think it's all Brett Brown's fault. I think there is some accountability that has to happen there. You know, there's been reports that he's never really held Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid accountable for their flaws and consistent flaws. So both those guys might be gone if this doesn't work. But specifically from the front office perspective, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this internally because... Yeah, like Al, it's not like they signed Al Horford to some cheap veteran contract to like come in and be a veteran mentor. They signed this guy to big money to be a big money part of their championship quest. And if things now go according to plan with Simmons going to more of a power forward and then benching Horford, he's not going to be a big money piece of that championship quest. So that in and of itself is kind of fascinating. Yeah, I am really, really curious to see how they close games and whether... Horford is going to be out there because he still is a really valuable defender, but I just don't think it's going to be tenable for them offensively to have those three out there at the same time. Like all season long, when those three have played together, it's been a total train wreck offensively. Like I think less than a point per possession. And also, I mean, like Horford at his age on that contract is going to be really difficult to move. I I sort of feel like they're stuck with him and Maybe they just consider that a sunk cost and they're like, okay, he's overpaid, but guess what? He's still going to be a really valuable bench big for us and we'll just eat the money and like hope that we can find a replacement starter on the cheap that's going to make all of this work. I think that's going to be really difficult to do. Um, and I, one of the big questions I have about this for both the Sixers and the Rockets, these are some trigger-happy front offices, right? Like They're not afraid to overhaul the roster or make big moves. With all the sort of extenuating circumstances, given how unusual this season is and how 
in a sense, like every team is kind of starting from scratch. Like we've talked about this being an offseason and now a preseason to lead up to play an eight game regular season followed by the playoffs. Like, how does that affect a front office's decision making? And do they take that? You know, how seriously do they take it when they're entering the offseason? Are they like, oh, well, we f- we went four and four in the seeding games and then lost in the first round. So we got to blow it up. We got to break up Simmons and Embiid. Or are they like, well, that wasn't really a fair shake. Let's give them another chance next year. Or even from a coaching perspective, do you want, if you're a team that's on the cusp of contention or is it view yourself as a contender, do you want to make a coaching change when the offseason is going to be like a month long? And, and the incoming coach wouldn't have the same time to prepare. Like maybe you just kind of, not that you're punting on next season, but you're essentially just taking another kick of the can with this core and then waiting until next summer when you have a more regular off season, we think, and, and can replace your coach then. But in terms of these two front offices being trigger happy, yeah, like they're as trigger happy as they come. The problem I think is that these are two trigger happy front offices that might've run out of bullets. Right. And, and you like the rockets and, and, the amount of times they've turned that roster over and found a second star to play along James Harden. You were able to trade Chris Paul for probably a worse contract. I don't think you're now moving Westbrook. Like At this point, I think it it almost is what it is, especially for the Rockets more so than the Sixers. Yeah, the Rockets have definitely run out of bullets. Like they're... The Sixers don't have any of, of like the... Until McFarlane can't even afford another bullet. <laughs> The Sixers, at least, like they, they're out all of the extra draft picks that they accumulated in the hinky years, but they still have all their own picks left in the cupboard. Whereas, like, the Rockets, when can, when's the earliest they can trade a draft pick? Like 2028? And the, the Sixers still do have tradable assets, right? Like, okay, like, okay, we talked about Horford being unmovable, but if, if they do decide to break up the Embiid Simmons, combo like one of those players is going to bring them back a haul the Rockets only option to do that is trading James Harden and they're not doing that because he is the fulcrum for which they're trying to build around so I think the Sixers definitely still have some room to operate and maneuver whereas the Rockets really do seem to be kind of at the end of the road with whatever this is right just like one more thing like and talking about draft assets about the Fultz thing so the pick that the Sixers traded him for last year from Orlando. Um, it, it came via Orlando, but it's actually the Thunder's pick, which I think was part of the Oladipo trade maybe initially, but that picks top 20 protected and the Thunder right now would have the 20th pick in the draft. So one question I have, I know, I think the league said that for the lottery teams, they're essentially freezing the lottery odds where they were when the season was suspended, right? Because they don't want teams like for the for the teams that aren't in the bubble. You mean? Well, I, no. I think they said like they they didn't want Washington to like go in the bubble and tank their way to zero and eight and improve. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think they did freeze them. How would that work? Because if the Wizards end up making the playoffs, well, then I think it just sort of yeah, the, like the Nets would wherever their record places them among non-playoff okay. teams is where they would end up in the lottery. So if you were if you were in the lottery and stay in the lottery, it would be frozen. But if obviously if you're a we were a playoff team that now falls into the lottery, that would change things, I, right? That makes yeah. some sense, I guess. Yeah. Um so I mean I don't think that they are doing the same for the draft order of the playoff teams. But I just like the Thunder are have the tw- at the twentieth pick right now if the season were to end today, and if they end up with that twentieth pick with a top twenty protection, 
the Sixers instead just get two second rounders, which would just I'm do I'm yeah. doing the chef's kiss. Like it would just be the icing on the cake of what was an absolute calamity of a 2017 draft for them. Uh, yeah. And I got like the Kings pick that they traded to to move up from three to one didn't actually amount to as much as it seemed like it would. The Celtics ended up getting it. I think it was it was the last pick in the lottery. I'm pretty sure. I don't yeah. remember who they ended up drafting with that pick, but that draft was uh, was pretty calamitous for Philly. And if if they only end up with two second rounders out of the Fultz thing, honestly, like I, I think Fultz is is quite good. Uh, like he has. He has. Every- you really do want this to be a six and a half hour pod. <laughs> he has every skill in his in his toolkit, aside from like arguably the most important one. And if somehow by like the the grace of the basketball god, he works his way back to being like even a slightly below average shooter, I think the Sixers might really come to regret dumping him. I think the Sixers might come to regret a lot of things. Yes. that have transpired over the last few years. This is a topic for another day, but hopefully we do get this matchup if. If if we get a Miami Philly four or five series and Jimmy Butler is the difference between Philly even getting out of the first round or not, you want to talk about Chef's Kiss? <laughs> that would be incredible. Yeah, who would you pick in that series? Miami. You've been high on Miami all year. I have, and and look that. I mean, as you know, I picked the Sixers to win the East at the beginning of the season. So like, I was high on Miami, but still higher on the Sixers ceiling. But now I'm just at a point where like. I don't know, unless the Sixers look like a completely different team in these eight games. I, I just think we're at a point where like the body of work over the course of the season has me in a spot. Where, like the only reason I'd be picking the Sixers is because of the way I felt about them before I actually watched them play. Yeah. But also like the defensive upside is still there and it's insane. You know? Yeah. It's but, I mean totally unfounded. Again, I still think their ceiling could be going all the way, but a reasonable prediction, I think, based on what we've seen over the course of whatever this season is, I, I still think we'd be going with Miami. Right. But, um, but you picked them when we did the hypotheticals to beat Boston in the first round. So you think they would beat the Celtics but lose to the Heat? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, again, that just like, as you said, I've been high on the Heat and especially as like a playoff team all year. And I just don't think, I, I think the Sixers size against Boston in particular could be really troublesome for the Celtics. Yeah. All right. Who uh, who else we got for teams we're excited to watch? Well, let's go with the Portland and New Orleans angle. Like again, I I know I mentioned that I did the most interesting subplots of the three top contenders, but we've honestly discussed all of that in so many recent podcasts. I can run through them really quick, and we don't even necessarily have to go into the details. The Bucks. You know, if people want to go check out that piece. I wrote about the Bucks supporting cast. It's no secret. We've talked about that a lot. Um, you know, we're both fans of Middleton and and that team in general. But I, I think the supporting cast will have to play better than they did last playoffs, especially in the series against Toronto. And there still is a bit to prove there um, from that supporting cast. In terms of the Lakers, I, ta- I wrote about uh, how it'll be fascinating to see how their depth in the rotation is managed with Avery Bradley and even Rajon Rondo. Well, we actually spoke about that on last week's episode. And then for the Clippers, I talked about a couple things. I talked about playoff P and Sweet Lou. Playoff P, Paul George, hasn't had the best playoffs the last couple of years. Um, and at least hasn't performed up to what up to what he's been in the regular season. He'll have to be better in the playoffs this year. And it'll be interesting to see what he looks like with some rest. This is a guy that hasn't been fully healthy the last little while, was coming off double sh- shoulder surgery coming into this year, has admitted that he was a little um, insecure about his health, even at the beginning of this season. So I'm interested to see what a healthy Paul George looks like and, and if he can actually look like playoff P. 
And then the Sweet Lou thing is something I mentioned the last time the Clippers and the Lakers played is that the Lakers really ruthlessly attacked Lou Williams in pick and roll actions down the stretch of that game and basically got what they wanted every single time because Lou Williams is basically a sieve on that end of the court. And it's interesting because like, if you look at the other contenders, whether it's the Lakers, even without Bradley, the Bucks, the Raptors, you know, heck, throw in the Celtics heat, like even the secondary contenders in those teams, best five man lineups, they don't really have a player that you can pick on as ruthlessly as you can pick on a guy like Lou Williams. And I think what'll be interesting is if Doc Rivers finally ditches Lou from their closing lineups and crunch time lineups, because they do have a little more versatility now um, with Morris there, whether they go small, um, you know, Shamit might be a better option than Lou, depending on Shamit's health. Like they're, the Clippers have options. And I think that'll be an interesting thing because Lou Williams has been so important to them the last couple of years, because when they were a starless scrappy team, they needed his offense. And now they're not a starless scrappy team. They're led by two superstars who can create their own shots and they're very deep. And I just don't think his offense is needed enough anymore to justify him being out there as the defensive sieve that he is in crunch time. I, I know we're going to do our finals picks at the end of this pod. So I, I can maybe address that stuff uh, when we talk about that. I just, my, my feeling is I don't think that the Clippers need to play Lou Williams in crunch time. Like they have so many different they, they lineup don't. combinations that they can throw out there that if he's getting picked on and if he's giving back more at the defensive end than he's providing at the offensive end, they'll just pull him. Like yeah. they've got, yeah, you said Shamit, like Beverly can replace him. And between Kawhi and PG, like those guys aren't elite passers, but like Kawhi really amped up his playmaking game this year. And if he's your primary playmaker down the stretch, I think you're doing all right. So I I don't think they have to worry about it too, too much. One thing I will add, and I mentioned it in the, in the most interesting teams piece I wrote is that there's a bit of like correlation there between the George situation and the Lou Williams situation. Because one of the things with Paul George this year, and honestly, the last couple of years is as he's become a really great shooter, which he is, he's attacked the basket a lot less. And that, you know, whether you look at his drives per game, his shots at the rim, his shots in the paint, like all of that is going down as his three point looks go up. Him getting to the rim a little more often and being a secondary, not just like a secondary scorer, but a secondary creator and being able to penetrate you. Him doing that, I think, also makes it a lot easier to not have Lou Williams on the court because, you again, you just don't need as much of Lou's creativity if you're getting that from both Kawhi and PG. But if PG is kind of content to just be this spot-up threat, then I do think there are times, you there like I've watched it, there are times when you have Kawhi and Paul George out there and Lou Williams is on the bench. And it does seem like they still need a little more creativity because Paul George just isn't giving it to them. And I think that's like an interesting subplot to watch too. If Paul George can be a little more like a mix of the new PG and the old PG, I think that'll make it easier for them to not have to rely on Lou Williams. Yeah, I think that's correct. Let's get into Portland and New Orleans and why you think these are the two most interesting bubble teams in the bubble. Yeah. Um... All right, well, we can start with New Orleans, and I don't think it's any secret why this is the team that is the most interesting of the the playoff bubble teams in the bubble. Um, <laughs> like, the biggest, the biggest reason is Zion, and again, like, that might sound obvious, but like, he really is that good and that unique and that exciting not fun to watch. Like the hype is not overblown. It's not just helium. Like he is all of those things. 
And he on his own is reason enough to be geeked about watching this team. Uh, the Pelicans were plus 10 uh, in terms of their net rating with him on the floor. And I think my favorite stat of his in those 19 games that he played, he took 13.1 field goal attempts per game in the restricted area, which was first in the league. And second in the league was Westbrook at 10.6. Yeah, Giannis was right behind Westbrook in third. But like, I could translate that to per 36 if you want. The 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 gap would be even piss me off. The gap would be that much wider because uh Zion's doing this in under 30 minutes a game. And he just like he was an absolute wrecking ball. You could not keep him away from the rim. Um and he just he he completely changed everything for that Pelicans team and once he came back they really started rolling. Obviously the elephant in the room is that Zion is not in the bubble right now. Uh, he's attending to a family medical situation that seems very serious. And, you know, we we can only hope that uh, whatever that situation is, that everything is going to be okay, that Zion's going to be okay. Um, but again, like we said on last week's episode, uh, the Pelicans announced that he does intend to rejoin the team. We just don't know when that's going to be. And we also don't know, like part of the protocol is if he's able to get tested every day that he's outside the bubble, produce a negative test every day, then when he gets back, he only has to quarantine for four days. If he's not able to do that, then he'll have to quarantine for 10 days. And I, I like, it, it, like that would require, like for him to get tested every day and get the results every day would require some kind of special exemption, right? Be Like be it a personal tester that the NBA or the Pelicans is, contracting to follow him around or there's like a a particular testing facility where he's able to get to the front of the line um because right now the testing turnaround in in most parts of the country are like four to six days and and like that's that's if you can even get the test at all because at a ton of these testing facilities people are waiting in hours long lineups just to get swabbed and i don't imagine that that's how zion is spending his days outside of the bubble it's obviously an unfortunate situation and, you know, obviously we hope for the best for his family first and foremost and, you know, basketball on the back burner. But yeah, from a basketball perspective, obviously, man, a lot of this bubble excitement, at least in the seeding games, maybe not in the playoff portion, but is is watching what Zion was ready to do and in potentially leading the Pelicans to the playoffs. So it would definitely be a bummer. You know, even like the first game, there's a reason the Pelicans are playing the first game. The NBA scheduled that for a reason. Yeah, logistically, in terms of whether he's getting tested often enough to avoid having to do the 10-day quarantine when he comes back, that that's a big question, especially for the Pelicans' playoff hope. In terms of the like on-the-court stuff with the Pelicans, I do feel like we've talked about them a lot because we've you know debated them and the Grizzlies. So I did want to get your take on the Blazers more so because I don't really think we've talked about them a lot in during the shutdown. But I agree with you that they are one of the most interesting teams in the bubble for a lot of reasons, whether you're talking about Nurkic and what he can bring to the team, whether you're talking about like Dame getting into big game Dame mode, um, seeing what slim mellow, you know, what skinny mellow, like the mellow version 7.0 at this point can <laughs> can be. There are a lot of reasons to kind of be interested in the Blazers. So what's your take on that? I, Nurkic is reason number one for me. I'm just really excited to see him get back on the court. He was one of my favorite players to watch when he was healthy, uh, you know, last season. And it's been 15 months, uh, maybe even 16 months since he suffered that injury. And I just, I, I don't know if people fully remember how good he was playing. 
uh, before that happened. Like, I think he was their second most important player, even though they end up making that run to the conference finals without him. And McCollum has some unbelievable playoff moments during that run. Like Nurkic's defense as a drop defender, he had gotten so advanced, I think, in terms of just his patience, his footwork, his handwork. And their defense has totally fallen apart without him. And that's not that's not the only reason their defense fell apart. But I think they, they were 27th in defense this year, and he's really going to help that. Also, you know, last year they had sort of reoriented their offense around his high post playmaking. He was a dribble handoff hub. Uh, he was picking out cutters from the elbows. And he was, I think he was leading the team in front court touches by a lot last year. And this year it's like, they replace him with Whiteside, who's a dive man and like a pretty good dive man, but obviously not offer, offering nearly the kind of playmaking that Nurkic is. So they essentially just go back to this heavy, like pick and roll ball handler offense where Lillard is getting more than half of his used possessions as an offensive player are being finished as the pick and roll ball handler. And it's really effective because he is averaging 1.14 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler, which is like basically Absolutely. unprecedented for the volume yeah. that he was doing it on. And I, I made the comparison of that piece to, to Steph Curry's 2015-16 MVP season and Curry on like half the volume of possessions as a pick and roll ball handler was averaging 1.11 points per possession. So Lillard was absolutely insane at the offensive end this year. And having Nurkic back, who is a better screen setter than Whiteside, and is only going to give him, I think, a little bit more space to operate, and is also just, like, he's a connector in the pick and roll, right? Whiteside, if Lillard is passing him the ball in the pick and roll, it's with the expectation that Whiteside is going to finish. With Nurkic, it's like Nurkic can finish on the roll, whether it's going all the way to the basket or shooting a little push shot. But he can also be kind of a middleman where he's making the next pass. And that's just sort of keeping the gears of that Blazers offense churning. And they were fourth in the league in offensive rating last year. They, they sunk to, I think, maybe 10th or 11th this year. Um, so I think he'll help them at both ends of the floor if, if he's playing up to the level or close to the level he was playing at when he got hurt. We don't know if that's going to be the case. but um, And rebounding is another, another big thing. Blazers were literally the best rebounding team in the league last year and this year they were 21st so that's another potential way that he can really improve that team so the blazers and the pelicans and the kings but who cares about the kings right now um, all enter three and a half games back but the blazers as we've noted in a few other discussions are technically at the head of the pack based on winning percentage so if things were to hold true right now the blazers would be in ninth and be within four games they would get the play in with memphis we've talked so much about the Pelicans and the matchup with the Grizzlies. So say right now it's Blazers, Grizzlies. I know it's such a hard question to answer because we don't know what Nurkic is going to look like, but I guess based on what you do anticipate happening and whatever he looks like after this long layoff, if it's Blazers, Grizzlies with the Blazers needing to beat them two times in a row, are you, do you like their chances there or would you still go with the Grizzlies? Cause I'm, I'm of the mind that like people have been waiting for this Grizzlies bubble to burst all season mm-hmm. and they've managed to, to keep their heads above water and I almost want to give them the credit. And, you know, we talked about Miami versus Philly and how I'm, I'm looking at the bigger sample size. I almost want to give Memphis the credit to be like, you know what? They only need to win one out of two games. Like, I think they'll do it. I think they're good enough to do it. Jaw's good enough. But but I do think Portland hitting their ceiling is maybe a little bit of a different animal. So what's your take on that? Grizzlies, Blazers, 
play in. I don't think the Blazers are so much better than the Grizzlies that I would pick them to win two games in a row. But I definitely wouldn't be surprised if it happened. I just think given their collective experience, uh, their confidence level, and and just like having somebody like Dame. Like I, I am a big believer in John Morant. That guy is fearless. He had an unbelievable rookie season. But I think comparing him to Lillard as a guy who's going to kind of get you over the finish line in a high leverage moment is, you know, I, I don't think they're remotely in the same arena. And... And the other reason I think this matchup kind of favors Portland, like the biggest issue with the Blazers is they just have like no wing defense, right? And that's, you know, I was saying like Nurkic's absence isn't the only reason their defense tanked. We've never seen Skinny Mellow play defense, (laughs) Joe. Uh, I guess we'll see how that goes. Yeah, but not well. You know, Aminu's gone, Harkless is gone. And so, you know, even with Nurkic back, I think their defense could struggle because like, who on the Blazers is guarding the opposing team's best perimeter player? Like, I guess Gary Trent is the answer. If the other team's best player is like a guard, then that's not the end of the world. If the other team's best player is like a big wing, you know, Kawhi or LeBron, they they don't have anybody who's up for that assignment. Um, But the Grizzlies don't have like particularly good wing scorers. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they're worried about what Dylan Brooks is going to do to them as much as I like Dylan Brooks. And I think... Lillard is, you know, for a point guard defender, he's fine. He's not great. He's not terrible. Um, he could do a solid enough job, I think, guarding Jaw. Or if they wanted to give that assignment to Gary Trent, who I think is like a really good physical perimeter defender, then he could handle that assignment as well. I wouldn't worry about it too much. So I don't think the Grizzlies are the matchup necessarily that would frighten Portland. Uh, and if Portland's hitting its stride and, you know, and, and playing its best basketball heading into that matchup, then, yeah, I would give them a decent chance of, of winning both of those games. All right. Before we get to the last team that we're going to talk about, then forget just the Grizzlies Blazers or Grizzlies Pelicans matchup, but just straight up, if someone like, who's going to get that eighth spot? Are you just sticking with the Grizzlies? Oh, man. Uh, I am. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sticking. Yeah. If Zion's back for like the start of the seeding games. And if his conditioning isn't compromised too much by the ramp up time that he's missing right now, I think I'm rolling with the Pelicans. I just think out of that collection of teams, they have the most talent. Um, Maybe you could say the Blazers have the highest upside, but I I don't even know if that's true. I think, I think the Pelicans might have an even higher upside and, and just more depth, I think than than either of those other teams. So I, yeah, I think I would pick them to to sneak in. The last team in the most interesting team series we put up was the defending champion, Toronto Raptors. I took this post. I kind of wrote about it in a way where I looked back on the piece I wrote actually opening week of the season, looking at the many questions the Raptors would have to answer this season if they were still going to be competitive. And for the most part, they answered all of those questions in the affirmative. You know, like I asked whether Pascal Siakam could be a number one scorer coming into the year. The guy averaged 23 and a half points on above average efficiency, um, improved his playmaking, became more of an above the break pull up three point shooter. Like in terms of being a go to regular season number one scorer, almost checked all the boxes. One of the questions I had was whether Lowry could take on more of a scoring role again. And he answered that question in pretty resounding yes. He somehow rediscovered that quick first step in his almost mid-30s now um, and was getting to the rim again while still being able to shoot and obviously 
incorporate his brilliant playmaking. A question I had in that opening week was, is this a really good shooting team hiding in plain sight? Because everyone was lamenting the the losses of Kawhi and Danny Green, even from a shooting perspective, and thinking, well, what, they replaced them with Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and Stanley Johnson. This team's not going to be able to shoot. Whereas when you actually looked at the overall roster, a lot of these guys could shoot, and they end up being number six in both three-point percentage and three-point attempt rate. So they answer all those questions. But now they there are more questions of them to be asked heading into the bubble. They've answered whether they can essentially be a contending team. Now they're going to answer whether... They can truly be in the mix to win another championship without Kawhi and with what's left behind. And the questions I now think they have to answer are, is Siakam a championship-type closer yet? You know, it's one thing to be, as Raptors fans know all too well from the pre-Kawhi years, it's one thing to have a legitimate number one scorer that can lead you to 50 wins in the playoffs. It's a very different thing to have a legitimate championship level closer as a number one scorer. So is Siakam that guy? Uh, What does Skinny Gasol and healthy Gasol look like, really, because Marcus Gasol's defensive impact this season was very reminiscent of Defensive Player of the Year, Marcus Gasol. He was that good. And he did that essentially while battling nagging injuries all year because he played like 15 months straight. He shows up seemingly in the best shape he's been in in years after some much-needed rest. A healthy and rested Marcus Gasol could be a very underrated component of how the East playoffs shape up. You know, we know how important he is in a matchup against Embiid in Philly. We know how important his second layer of defense is in a matchup against Giannis and the Bucks. We know how important his zone-busting playmaking is. And then just the final question is, what does this rotation look like now that they're finally healthy, which they essentially have not been all year? Almost every major player on this team missed 10-plus games this year. Nick Nurse had to mix and match rotations out of necessity. This team is like probably legitimately 12 deep, but we know they're probably only going to be 8 to 10 deep from a rotation perspective in the playoffs. So like who's getting left out? How does Nick Nurse, who's been so creative managing this rotation through all the injuries, manage the rotation and the depth and the egos now? There are so many interesting questions that have come up for this team, even as they've answered all the preseason questions we had for them. So with all that said, I guess, where do you see this team? What interests you about them or fascinates you about watching them in the bubble? And what do you think their chances are of upsetting the Bucs or getting back to the finals or maybe even having a chance to repeat, if at all? I give them an outside chance. I just think they've obviously proven over the course of the season that their floor is going to be incredibly high, even if you know, two of their top seven guys are out of the lineup, which was the case almost every game they played, like you mentioned Um their opening night starting five was only healthy together for 17 games and they only played 280 total minutes together. They killed teams in those 280 minutes, by the way, uh, 11.7 net rating. Yeah, I think just like the, the most interesting single thing to me is whether they can sustain the defense, which ranks second in the league despite the insane number of corner threes that they gave up. Um, 13.6% of opposing shots, according to Cleaning the Glass, coming from the corners. And that is not only the most this season by far, it is the most ever by far. And that's just, on paper at least, kind of antithetical (laughs) to the idea of having like an efficient defensive shot profile. Cleaning the Glass has this stat, um, location effective field goal percentage, which basically just provides... Uh, like an estimation of what uh, if an opposing team shot a league average percentage on the kind of shots that they were getting against team X, um, this is what they would be expected to shoot 
Raptors rank 25th in the league in that category. But in terms of actual uh, defensive effective field goal percentage, they rank third. So they outperformed that number by over 3%. And I, I don't think that's purely luck. Our friend Blake Murphy actually wrote like a really deep dive into this particular thing, explaining how the Raptors close out, uh, the way they play defense, the kind of shooters that they're forcing the ball into the hands of and the guys who are taking those shots and, and the reason they might actually be realistically suppressing those numbers and, and not just uh, flukily doing so. But I am just sort of curious to see because they play this hyperactive defensive style where there are a lot of blitzes um, and putting themselves in rotation a ton and they have all these long, rangy, fast, smart guys who are able to make up ground and close space and help and recover. And so putting themselves in rotation that often hasn't hurt them. But just given the defensive shot profile and given how taxing it looks for them to play the way that they do, uh, I think that's the biggest question I have is whether that defense can hold up. I think another big defensive question, you know, and I mentioned it, it's basically part of the Gasol question I mentioned, but it's what does this, if Gasol remains healthy and they remain healthy, like what does this defense look like fully loaded for an extended period of time? You know, as well as anyone, how much better the Bucks defense is than anyone else in the league. The Raptors have the number two defense in the league. They were great all season. And yet the Bucks defense was still more than three points per 100 possessions better than even the Raptors number two defense. With Gasol on the court, the Raptors defensive rating this season was more than a point per 100 possessions better than that Bucks defense. And I know we're talking about a smaller sample size. It's it's yeah, but also look at the Bucks defensive rating with Giannis on the floor, and I think fair enough. Start difference there still. I'm just saying that a, a Raptors defense that's already pretty damn good was a hell of a lot stingier with Marcus All on the court for sure. I think them at their best and fully loaded really, really can give the Bucs a run for their money in a seven-game series and I think can make make that Milwaukee team look a lot more human than they have for the majority of the season. Yeah, I've said this many times. I, I, in a series between the Raptors and the Bucks, I would not have any concerns about the Raptors' ability to match up defensively with Milwaukee. I think outside of maybe Philadelphia, I feel like they... And like maybe Miami, but like with Miami, it's really just Bam. And I guess Derek Jones Jr. to a lesser extent. But like, I think the Raptors outside of Philly might have the best complement of players to throw at Giannis, you know, both on like an individual defensive level and a team defensive level. Like, yeah, I I think that they are well equipped to defend Milwaukee. My, My concern there would be like, can the Raptors score enough on that Milwaukee defense? I think that's just an open question. You know, like the, the, the particular things that you need to be able to do to bust that Bucks coverage is it's like, you know, pull up jumpers, whether that's from the mid range or from three, you know, a lot of above the break three point shots, uh, a lot of pick and pops for your bigs. And in some ways, the Raptors tick those boxes and in some ways they don't. Uh, and I think, you know, particularly the the pull-up shooting from the mid-range is like a clear deficiency for them and a place where having Kawhi last year, it was like an automatic drop buster because he's, you know, maybe the single best pull-up mid-range shooter in the entire league. And without that, I don't know if they can score enough to to actually beat the Bucks in a best of seven. But I do think they have the goods to make it a competitive series and certainly make it tough on Milwaukee to score 
at the other end. So in terms of them scoring on Milwaukee and, and the Siakam question I mentioned about, you know, whether he can take his game from just dependable number one regular season option to championship level closer, I think the playoffs really could um be super fascinating in that regard because if you look at the way it things are shaping up and some of the Raptors potential matchups, and then you think about the guys who really give Siakam problems, guys that are almost built like himself. I know Jonathan Isaac's probably not going to play or isn't going to play, but you know that was the type of guy who can give him problems. Uh, Bam Adebayo gives Siakam problems. Giannis Antetokounmpo gives Siakam problems. Uh, the Sixers gave him some problems by putting Joel Embiid on him and dropping back. And Siakam's development there is key because he is a better playmaker now. And again, as we mentioned, he is more comfortable shooting those above the break pull-up threes which could help him against the type of defense Philly threw at him. But yeah, I think Milwaukee can trouble Siakam. Philly still can, uh, to a degree Miami can. And so it's going to be a big proving ground for Siakam because they might have to get through all, you know, some or all of those teams that they do want to get back to the finals. And the interesting thing with Pascal is though he has struggled still against those types of players and teams, when you look at his actual crunch time numbers, they were absurdly good. If you look at the 100 players that played the most clutch time minutes in the NBA this season, I think he ranked top 12 in usage, but still had a crunch time true shooting percentage above 60. So it wasn't always pretty. And at times it looked like he was struggling and yet the results were sparkling. And, you know, like the Lowry Siakam pick and roll, especially proved lethal down the stretch of close games. The Siakam Lowry pick and roll more specifically. Right. Yeah, which is interesting, right? So yeah, I don't know. There are questions for this team to answer, but I really think based on what they showed us over the course of 64 games at five-sevenths strength for the majority of that time, a fully loaded Raptors team is honestly to me as dangerous as any team in the East. And I realize that I'm including Milwaukee in that sentence. Yeah, I mean, that does lead me into, like if there were two things I had to point to that I'm most interested to see and most curious about with this Raptors team, it is the defense and then that crunch time offense. Because... Their crunch time offense was ridiculous this year. 121.5 points per 100 possessions. That was uh, second to the Thunder. And as a team, 63.5% true shooting in the clutch. And all of that is way better than it was last year. Uh, Last year, they were 109.5 offensive rating and 55% true shooting in the clutch when, you know, the bulk of their late game offense was just clearing out for Kawhi Leonard isos. And... I do think, you know, Siakam has soaked up a lot of those late game possessions, but overall it's been more of like a democratic equal opportunity approach to crunch time. And it's produced these incredible results. uh, And that, you know, that Siakam Lowry pick and roll is just like such a fail safe in a lot of ways, because obviously, you know, Lowry is a fantastic screener, which is maybe the most important element of that play because it does force the switch so often and Siakam can really roast smaller guys on switches. He can just back them down, put a little spin on them, and it's game over. Um, but if they try to avoid the switch, then Lowry's just going to pop to the three-point line. And you know whether he is forcing a rotation and swinging the ball or attacking a closeout or just shooting the open three, he's going to be extremely dangerous when he's catching the ball in space. And Fred Van Vliet can serve that role as well. Also a great screener, also a great shooter. With either of those two guys, um, that two-man action is going to be pretty deadly. So I-, I am curious to see whether this crunch time offense can translate uh, to a playoff setting uh, and whether they can be as effective in the clutch uh, as they were with a guy like Kawhi, who was basically just their go-to one-on-one scorer when games got tight. 
the way things are shaping up, I'm taking some time off to end this week. You're taking some time off to begin next week. So chances are the next time we speak in a pound the rock setting, there will be games to talk about and games will have started, which is kind of crazy to think about. So with that said, before we go, we've gone almost 80 minutes here. Let's give listeners, I guess, updated finals predictions if they've changed at all. I'm going Clippers over Bucks, um, which was my my preseason prediction. I, I think I sort of waffled during the season, and at one point I had the Bucks over the Clippers. I think that the sort of neutral site has tilted things back to the Clippers for me. Uh, the lack of home court for Milwaukee, this long layoff where I just don't know how it's going to affect everybody. I, I think I just have more faith in the Clippers than anybody else. Um, I think they have fewer weaknesses pretty much than any other team. Even the Lou Williams thing that you mentioned, like I said, I just don't think that that's a huge issue. Like if they have to pull them off the floor in crunch time, they'll be fine. And I just feel like if there's one single player in the league who I'd bet on to not be remotely affected by the lack of fans, it would have to be Kawhi. Like that he is so locked in and focused and like so stoic and just so totally unperturbed all the time. It's possible that he's not even aware that there have been fans watching him play up to this point, you know? Like I think I think he'll be totally fine and I he just inspires a ton of confidence. So I'm picking Clippers over Bucks. Lakers over Raptors. <laughs> all right. So you you uh, you really think the Raps are going to Pull it out against Milwaukee, huh? Yeah. Or I think they might not need to. Interesting. So you, I, you think, uh, you think is it Miami or Philly that's taking them down? I think one of those teams could take them out. But I think one, whichever one of those teams, whether they take them out or not, I really do think that they could bang them up a little bit and make them have to work for it. Like, I don't think the Bucs are cruising through that second round into a conference finals matchup potentially with the Raptors. But I think based on the way it's looking like it'll shape up where the Bucs will have to get through one of Miami or Philly and then Toronto. I just think for a lot of matchup related reasons, I think one of those teams will do it. And, and then I think the Lakers win, win the title, which is what I predicted at the beginning. So the only thing I'm changing is I had the Sixers winning the East in the beginning of the year. And I don't know, maybe the Bucks will make me look really silly and just rampage through the East playoffs. Completely plausible. Yeah. But imagining the Raptors at full strength and Nick Nurse's creativity and a little bit of my lack of faith in Mike Budenholzer in a postseason setting, which I don't think is completely undeserved. I think the Raptors are going to find a way through this. And, and then I think the Lakers will, will win the title. I think Miami is really interesting to me because I actually like I'm not a huge believer in that team as a whole. Like I, I like them. I think they're a pretty good team. I just don't think they're quite as good as their record this season has shown. But I do think that potential matchup against Milwaukee is really interesting, both because of how well Bam has defended Giannis, but also because they're the best above the break three point shooting team in the league. And now like a ton of that is just Duncan Robinson, obviously, and maybe the Bucks would be able to lock in on him and top lock him and provide the help at the rim and and essentially take him out of the game. They weren't able to do so when they played during the regular season. But, you know, the Bucks give up a ton of above the break threes uh, and Miami can take advantage of that, whether it's Robinson or whether it's one of their bigs pick and popping. I mean, Myers Leonard or Kelly Olynyk. Um, I, I think that would be an interesting matchup and, and potentially a hard fought series. I don't, I don't think I would pick Miami to win it, but I do think they can trouble Milwaukee. But make your case to me quickly about why you think the the Lakers are going to beat the Clippers. I still think, as I've said all year, that LeBron will be the best player in that series. 
regardless of how you rank the four superstars in that series from a one to four basis on an individual level, I still think the LeBron AD combination is such a perfect combo of skill sets that I think over the course of seven games in a neutral site, it will prevail. And again, I, I am worried about the Lakers depth a little bit because the Clippers were already the deeper team. And that does concern me a little bit. Maybe it's short-sighted because I did really like some of the things I saw in that third matchup before the shutdown between the two teams, whether it's AD at the five. And I just don't think the Clippers have an answer. I don't, I don't know if any team has an answer for it, but you know, we talked about how matchup proof AD makes the Lakers. And if the Clippers want to go small and the, and the Lakers go AD at the five, they'll just destroy them because they don't have anyone who like AD can hang with a Harrell on the defensive end. He's quick enough to do it. And on the offensive end, he can bombard him in the post, but if they do go big, obviously AD can put the ball on the floor and and create mismatches there and still bang with a guy in the post and the defensive end. Like, I think he makes the matchup proof. The concern is that the Clippers can throw either of Kawhi or PG at LeBron and really other than LeBron, who are the Lakers throwing at Kawhi? I think the Lakers will throw LeBron at Kawhi and that's the end of the story. And I think they'll live with that. And I think LeBron will do a good enough job in that. And we saw that in that third matchup. You think, I, I mean, I know LeBron had a great defensive year this year and the guy is a marvel of modern science. I'm beyond questioning what he's capable of physically at this point. But even so, just given the offensive workload that he's going to have to carry, you think that he can handle the primary Kawhi Leonard assignment for a, a whole series and it's not going to impact his production at the other end of the floor? might impact his production, but don't you think Kawhi handling that responsibility guarding LeBron will impact his production? I mean, yeah, but I think... Kawhi obviously is like significantly younger and not that Kawhi has been like a picture of health. I mean, he hobbled through a lot of the postseason run last year. I just at this point in time feel like I have a little bit more faith in him being able to do it at both ends than I do in LeBron. And, and maybe I will be proven wrong on that count. I, and I mean, you mentioned too, like even if LeBron is handling the, um, the Kawhi assignment, then you have Paul George to deal with. And I don't, I, I guess Danny Green's the guy you, you throw on PG, but like he's still giving up what a good three inches of height there so yeah so you, you would you have clippers in seven or you think it would be less than seven no i would take clippers in seven i think it's good i think those teams are really evenly matched uh really well matched in ter- like I, I think it would be just like a super fun stylistically interesting series um so yeah i would pick it to go to seven and, and i would take the clippers to prevail I know it sounds crazy because like we're talking about Kawhi Leonard and and what we saw him do last postseason especially was indescribable. But I, even having witnessed that, I still don't know if I could ever bring myself to pick against LeBron at, at the level he's still at in a game, in like in a winner take all situation. And maybe that's just my blind faith in LeBron. Which I mean, is like a lot of what blind. this matchup it's not which blind. is a lot of what this matchup comes down to for me. Yeah. No, it's not blind faith at all. I mean it's the last time we saw LeBron playing in the playoffs, at least, you know, before he broke his hand, punching a whiteboard, like he was maybe the single best player I've ever seen like yeah. in that game one against the Warriors that he almost single-handedly won. Uh, and that entire playoff run, he was on another planet. So I, I don't think it's blind faith at all. I mean, I think that Kawhi is basically on his level at this point. He, he's obviously not there as a passer and is never going to be, but I think he makes up for it in other ways that... I don't know. I, I almost have just like a little bit more faith in in Kawhi in that matchup. And I just think the Clippers are a little bit better built overall too. So 
I'm Again, yeah, I, I don't dispute that. I think they're I think they're better built and I think they're deeper. And that was before the Bradley injury. I think they're even deeper now. I just I have a lot of faith, obviously, as we just spoke about in LeBron in a winner take all situation. And I really do think that the skill set combination of him and AD is just so perfect. And and some of the problems AD presents for the Clippers on both ends of the court, I do think will add up over the course of seven games. But Either way, I think it sucks that there won't be fans in attendance, but this really could be an absolute classic of a playoff series, yep. and and I hope we get it. And you you take the Lakers over the Raptors in the finals, eh? Yeah. So Lebronto reigns again. Yeah, that's exactly what it'll be. <laughs> Just won't happen in Toronto, but you know those jokes will be had. Well, I'm looking forward to that, man. I'm looking forward to all of this, honestly. It's it's taken yeah. me a while to come around to like actually being excited about this and, and taking it seriously as a realistic possibility, but here we are. What are we like? Let like a little bit more than a week away from things yep. actually kicking off in earnest. So, uh, like you said, you're taking the next few days off, and then I'm taking a couple of days off after that. So I'll see you on the other side, man. Yes, sir. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. 